Before we start today's episode, we should really talk about the uh, quite exciting recent announcement. Yes, it's probably the biggest announcement we've had as Goodies fans for, well, quite a few years, really. Yes, I'm actually quite happy we managed to get this in before we finished our run through the goodies. So uh, Yes, even if we are dropping this in after we thought we'd finished recording. Yes, indeed. But of course, we are talking about the announcement of the Network DVD box set. Yeah, so every BBC episode. Yes, that's right. All in one box. Yes. And it's also got all the little extras that we've covered, so it's got... Uh, Christmas goodies? Uh, basically all the specials, so the Montreux version of Kit and Kong, uh, collection of goodies, the Travelling Instant 5 Minute Christmas. Yeah, that's the one. Superstar, Beanstalk, and goodies rule okay. And do we know, are they all unedited? That certainly would be my hope. I have actually got a couple of queries in with Network around some more specifics on the set, but unfortunately they haven't come back to me at the time we recorded this, so maybe we'll have a look on the Facebook page, because we'll post it there once I hear from them. Yeah, we'll keep all the news up on the Facebook page. Yes, and of course for pre-orders, they're giving not only a signed certificate for the first 500, but there's also a couple of additional books. Uh, Yes, so tell us about those. I'm reading off their press release, so you may well have seen this yourselves. But first is the goodies DVD file, which is listed here on the press release as an overview of Graham, Bill and Tim's careers, beginning at Cambridge and working through to the post-goodies era, bringing the story right up to date. Written by archive television historian Andrew Pixley. Yes, somebody we've mentioned many times over this podcast, a huge admirer of his work. Yes, and I suspect that perhaps is maybe an updated version of the material in Super Chaps 3. Mm-hmm. The second one, I'm guessing perhaps is also maybe some of his work for Super Chaps 3, which is the Goodies Book of Criminal Recordings, which is listed here as an episode-by-episode analysis of the entire Goodies output, uh, including their ITV series and an index covering commercial recordings and other endeavours. So I'm guessing that might be the appendix uh, at the back of Super Chaps 3 that goes through the the episode details. Plus, and this is a really good one because I'm guessing... Very few people actually got to see this because I think the theatre was only held about four or 500 people. Is the stage show or the stage appearance they did a couple of weeks ago an audience with the goodies? Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yes, at the Leicester Square Theatre and that's the whole show. So I'm actually really looking forward to that one. Sounds like a really, really nice package. Oh, I think so. I think this will be a really good set. Network are still taking pre-orders on their site. They did say this was a limited run of 1,000 units, but I notice it is still up on their site. So get in and grab it quickly for Australians. It'll cost you about $120 with postage. Yes. Mine came to 121 on the credit card. Yes, so. that's right. It's released in September, so look, we will probably do another special just looking at the box set when it comes out, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can all take our brand new pristine copies of the goodies and... Start all over again. Work your way through the podcast. But that's probably enough waffle from us. Now on with today's actual episode, which is our look at the goodies in Australia. For the sound of sensation across the nation, listen to radio goodies. Welcome to the Goodies Pirate Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Tom. I'm Richard. And this week we're going to talk a little bit about the goodies in Australia. Yes. Because let's face it, although they were a UK TV show, where they've had a lot of their fame and many of their repeat viewings and a large part of their fandom has been in Australia. Yes, it has. Really the goodies second home. It is. 
So we're going to divide this episode into three distinct segments. The first segment is to talk a bit about the goodies on air. Now, Richard, we'll hand this one over to you. You've been doing some research on how the goodies was screened here. It's a work in progress, but I have been doing some stuff on how the goodies was transmitted here. And this really is probably my current notes. I'll probably make a couple of just quick generalizations before we start. This research relies very much on archive TV listings. So it's been days in the State Library, days online searching. This has its own drawbacks. There are online resources, but they're not always complete. If you go into the State Library, they don't always hold the relevant papers for different states, etc. So, But in many ways, this is literally you going and finding either online or in an archive the actual copy of the TV guide for that week and looking for when. Yes, they're usually microfiche copies, but yes. So it has been reading a lot of 30 and 40 year old newspapers, which has been quite interesting because you do get a bit of a feel for what the current stories were at the time and everything Mm. like that. One other generalisation I will add, in the early days, the ABC in each state operated fairly independently. So while they would obviously share the same programs, they would screen them at different times of the day. They'd show them on different nights. There would be episodes screened in some locations that weren't screened elsewhere, etc. It's that whole tape cycling idea. And I know there is research being done on that at the moment for Doctor Who. But, yeah, so that ceases once we get into the later 70s, which I'll cover during this. But to get started, so it's not just me rambling, the first appearance of the goodies on Australian TV was on Thursday the 11th of November 1973 in Sydney and Canberra. Now, they showed an episode that night and one the following week, which appeared to have been the Playgirls Club, which is a very interesting one to start the series with, and Snooze. Now, they then actually took the goodies off for several weeks while they showed what would be the final series of the Auntie Jack show, for anyone old enough to remember Auntie Jack. Now, some other states did screen these two episodes. They were certainly shown in Perth and I believe Adelaide. They don't appear to have been screened here in Melbourne, though. But the goodies then come back for a proper run of Series 1 and Series 2 episodes starting in December. And they run basically across the summer period. They were shown in different states on different nights and at different times. Here in Melbourne, they were shown on Wednesdays and Saturdays. In Sydney, they were shown on Fridays and Saturdays. They don't screen all of Season 1 and Series 2. They're just selected episodes. One thing I do have to say, of course, at this time, Australia is still transmitting in black and white. We didn't get colour TV until 1975. We then jump forward a little bit. Series 3 then debuts either late 1974 or early 1975, depending on where you are. Melbourne doesn't seem to have shown all of Series 3 when they first got it. They only seem to have shown part of it. Now, this again is still in black and white. But Australia goes to colour on the 1st of March 1975. It happened at midnight. And we mentioned Auntie Jack a minute ago. The ABC actually celebrated the move to colour by bringing Auntie Jack back for an evening. Yes. And what the way they did that was just as a sidebar, they started off in black and white and very slowly turned the colour up as the little skit ran. And the skit was basically around their attempts to stay monochrome and then suddenly defining being in colour. Wasn't that bad after all. Now, because we've moved to colour, the first episode of the goodies screened in colour in Australia seems to have been the goodies in the beanstalk, which is probably a pretty visual episode to start off with. Yeah. That was shown as a one-off special in some states, and that's sort of later 75 Now, one thing, of course, this means the ABC clearly at some point then went and repurchased series one to three and purchased them in colour, which also probably means they would have had to have gone back through the Australian census. So we are potentially left with the thing where what was cut out of the episode when they were shown in black and white may not have been what was cut out of them when they were then shown in colour. I don't really know there's much way to prove that, but... 
Now, there are some that drop out of the running at this point. Playgirls Club is one. And I think you could probably, if you were to go through, because the BBC didn't hold a complete set of the goodies in colour for quite some time, and still don't, obviously, in a couple of instances. I suspect that probably the ones that drop out of the Australian run at this point would be the ones that probably didn't exist in colour in the BBC's archive at the time the ABC repurchased them. But that probably needs a little bit more work. Now... We all, of course, remember the goodies being on, on weeknights. Mm. In their early incarnations, they were actually shown in a post-watershed time slot. They were shown around 8.30, 9 o'clock at night in most locations. The big move to weeknights happens in 1976. They were shown at 5.30. And that's when Series 5 debuts here. Series 4 screened here in late 1975. And this is really when they start becoming popular here. I think that's probably when I picked it up. And that, that's when I remember uh, seeing them at that point. Yeah, so they moved to weeknights. Now... They then do another couple of sets of repeats, but we won't go through all those. But the big one everyone remembers is when they were paired with Doctor Who. Mm. Now, that doesn't actually happen until 1979. Mm. Doctor Who moves to weeknights in 1978, the start of of season 13. Uh, But, yeah, 79 is where it's paired with the goodies. And that's also when we get the premieres of Series 6 and Series 7. And then we get another big, long run of repeats. And now, at this point, this is really when the goodies becomes that staple. Every year, you will guarantee at least one run of the goodies. By this stage, the runs are very much concurrent across the country. There are some regional variations, obviously, as things get preempted for events or they drop out of sequence or something. But at this point, the screenings are largely concurrent. We then get, obviously, more repeats. As we said, it becomes a staple. Uh, Season 8 debuts here in 1981, March 1981. It's not with Doctor Who. These are just brand new ones more repeats and look we the repeats really continue until well into the late 1980s oh, yes. they're not always with doctor who but the very last abc run through here was in 1993 where they mm. basically went right back to the start and showed pretty much everything with a few exceptions that's the last time they were ever screened on the abc there are a few episodes that drop in and out of the run at different times on the abc for example the Greenies was screened here in the very early days. It wasn't screened again until that last run through in 93. All those runs across the late 70s and 80s that we never saw the Greenies. The two black and white episodes, Come Dancing and Commonwealth Games, I have notes that they were screened here in black and white in the late 70s. And I'd confirm that because I recall seeing that and the Greenies around that 76 run, which is when I really yeah. started picking it up and watching it all the time. And then they disappeared. Yes, and they obviously dropped them out. Well, probably because they were in black and white, and black and white TV would have been passe by then. So, but you notice something like the Playgirls Club was screened here in the very early days, and then was yeah. never seen again and until we get to pay TV. So that's those. The other one is, of course, what happens with the LWT episodes. They screened here on Channel Seven. Yep. Now they debut here in September 1983, and as we've mentioned, they opened with their first episode was Bigfoot. Mm. They, of course, then in 1986, Channel 7 purchased the BBC episodes as well, repeated the LWT ones, and then did a repeat run of most of the BBC episodes. In the early 90s, Channel 10 here buy them. They only buy the BBC episodes. They don't show the LWT ones. And they actually, they show Double Trouble or the Baddies for the first time in probably about 15 years. Mm. So when these went on a commercial station... Yes. Did they have to be cut to fit into the half-hour? Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, they were quite heavily edited. And some of the copies, if you're into 
episode trading. Some of the episodes that were circulating, there were dual versions circulating. There was sort of a, 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 the commercial TV version, which were quite, if you look at something like Romantics, which is cut down to about 20 minutes, yeah. basically to fit the ads, as opposed to the full length one on the ABC, which is nearly 30 minutes. And then you have the edited one from the ABC, which they screened earlier because the, some of the sexual stuff in it was cut out, which was about 24. So there's actually, there were at times three versions of that floating around. And I think that's where both my memory and the fan legend of the South Africa episode being massively what you hear yes. comes from. I don't know whether it was coincidence that all of the apartheid stuff was cut out of the commercial releases, but certainly that's what was. And that led to the legend that it had been masculine khaki because it was political and yes. all that sort of thing. Probably one or two final notes. The two 45-minute specials, the Goodies Rule OK and Goodies in the Beanstalk, they were shown on the ABC occasionally, but they were very often, it was just at the end of the run because they didn't fit the ABC's half-hour format, half an hour of the goodies and then half an hour of Doctor Who. So you tended to get them right at the end mm. uh, occasionally. I think the last time they were shown here, I think it was early 80s, both of them early to mid 80s. And they were never shown on the commercial ones, neither was Superstar. So there you go. And probably the last point is, Hype Pressure is the only episode other than the original Kitten Kong that was never screened here on free-to-air TV, mm. which we talked about during Hype Pressure. And the Kitten Kong would have been, I think, replaced by the Montreux version by the time the ABC were looking at buying them. So, there you go. Richard, thank you for that summary of the broadcasting here in Australia. I hope that was at least vaguely entertaining. <laughs> that was certainly thorough. And, you know, it's interesting to hear about all this stuff. And Oh, I could go much more detailed than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I could just ask the final question. We know the goodies has a reputation being repeated here a lot. An episode like Tower of London... How many times would that have gone out in Australia between 73 and 93? Um, I think we would be talking probably somewhere around 15 times, probably even more if you factor in the commercial screenings. Wow. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, as we've mentioned a few times in the podcast, you did sort of have that thing where every year you were guaranteed at least one run of the goodies there for probably the best part of 15 years. Yeah, well, that does make sense. Yeah. After all that discussion around the screening history, I did actually just want to spend a sec on what I thought was quite an interesting little side note. While I was doing all this research, I came across some details of a private TV network uh, that was set up for the mining communities right out in remote northwest western australia that that is very remote yes it is it was called the mining television network you're you're right the area there is really isolated and in the 1970s when the mining communities and that really sort of started growing that was literally these little towns to spring up in the middle of absolutely nowhere yeah like multiple hours flight from you know the nearest city yeah well we're talking they sort of set up there was a port city at a place called dampier which is something like 1200 kilometers and that's in a straight line from perth so and then obviously further inland, and again, we're talking you know, 300 kilometres or more inland are the actual mining communities where the mining sites are. So the point of which, I guess, is that these are outside the major network televisions. Oh, there's nothing there. At the time some of these communities went up, they weren't even connected to the rest of Australia by phone. Right. Um, they are literally in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And yeah, and you sort of have these communities and, and obviously they would work in the mines for whatever their shift was, two or three weeks, and then they would come back into Dampier or, or wherever to have their week off. Yeah. Uh, with you know, quite often they had their families living up there and all this sort of thing. And it's quite 
interesting actually because the, the area opens up in the 1960s when they start building the mines and that sort of stuff and if you read through the records and the histories you watch these towns sort of start to grow and develop as they start to form communities you know people bring their families up to live there because they're going to be there long term someone opens a general store yeah and, and you do get stuff like that you go from the general store to the first supermarket and then you go from the supermarket sort of the first sort of small shopping center you got the first baby born in the town and then you know where you got the hundredth one born in the town and then you got the first kids finishing school there yep. and going on to uni social clubs and sporting clubs and that's starting to form and you know the town sort of grows but i guess sort of bringing this back to the goodies, goodies yes yes it is also quite interesting from a sort of tv history perspective because as we said there was no communication links initially to the rest of the country so what they used to do to provide entertainment was they set up a small TV service in the early 1970s and they would actually fly or road transport tapes up from Perth and they would play them. They'd get up there about a week after they'd been screened and then they'd be screened in the port town and then they would be shipped again 300 miles inland to be played at the mining communities. Well, wow. So you have stuff like sporting matches that go out live in Perth. The people in Dampier up on the coast get to see them about a week later and then the people down at Tom Price, which is where the mine is, see them about a week after that. And, and this goes on for a while. Because the ABC is a national broadcaster, they initially took their content from the ABC. And the ABC eventually did build a transmitter on the coast, which sort of covered Dampier. But they were actually still recording the footage there and sending it down into the mining communities until well into the 1980s. And this presumably included the goodies? Yes, it did. It's kind of sad because it also includes stuff that's now probably missing, like some of the early 70s repeats of Callan were shown, and they would include the black and white episodes, and even stuff like Broaden Your Mind, um, which I think now only survives as a couple of clips, and like a half episode. That was screened in these communities. Wow. Now, I suspect before everybody descends on Dampier uh, looking for videotapes, this was 45 years ago, so I suspect they are long gone. But it is quite an interesting sort of little slice of history. I am sort of slowly compiling more information about the network as we go. I mean, one day I will write all this up and actually release it as a blog or an essay or something. But there you go. So that's just an interesting little sidebar before we continue on with the episode. The goodies probably in the most remote place they were seen. Yes, probably. (laughs) So there you go. So the next segment is going to be actually looking at fandom in Australia and those people that enjoy the goodies enough to put together clubs and events and all that sort of thing. And we decided that the best way to do this is not to talk secondhand about it, but find people who can talk firsthand about it. Yes, let's talk to people who are actually there. So, Richard, you went out and interviewed a few people. Who's the first one we've got? Yeah, we are going to lead into a couple of interviews. The first is with Alison Bean, who is the founder of the Goodies Rule OK Club, Yep. which is an online club. So, look, it's global, but it was founded here in Australia. Cue the transition music. I guess if we start perhaps with your history with the show, you obviously being Australian, you would have grown up with the endless repeats on the ABC. Yes, I did. Like everyone else, you'd come home from school and and you'd watch the goodies. But then I guess when I sort of really started to get into it, I think was when Channel 10 acquired the goodies in around 1990. Mm -hmm. And by, by that point, we had a video recorder and so I was actually recording a bunch of episodes onto VHS but of course being the Channel 10 series they had to cut them down so they could put ads in in the half hour slot so I've got all these recordings I don't know if the tapes still play but they are off air recordings of the Channel 10 screenings complete with ads for let's make a deal with Vince Sorrenti (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> and, and various kind of Demtel products in the ad breaks. Wow. But, you know, they're not they're not the complete episodes. And, and I think a couple of years later, the ABC reacquired the goodies for one last screening. Mm. It was around ni- 93 or something. And so, you know, I was able to tape a few more episodes that didn't have ads in them. But I think after that, that was pretty much it until pay TV came along in the mid nineties. And, and I think they started showing the goodies on, on the UK TV channel. My family never got Foxtel, so we never saw any of that, but that's my personal history with it. What about now? I know you're no longer active in fandom, obviously, but yeah, um, look, I, obviously I bought all the DVDs that were released by network and, you know, I've watched all of those. And, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll pull out one of the DVDs and watch an episode. But I think, I think the thing is, like, I've, I've watched them, you know, in my youth so many times that I kind of deliberately don't watch them because I don't want to spoil it. It's been quite interesting. I mean, we've obviously just watched the whole series for the podcast in, in fairly rapid succession. It, it is interesting yeah. how you change. There are quite a lot I remembered. I, probably more I didn't get, I think, more when I was a kid that I hadn't yep. seen for probably 20, 25 years and yep. watched for the podcast. It's only got a whole new appreciation for. But, yes, there were a few that sort of I don't think have aged that well. Yeah. I think remembering how I watched it as a kid and appreciate it and how I appreciate it now as an adult... Certainly when I was a kid, it was the visual stuff that I really liked. And then as I got older, I preferred the kind of in-studio dialogue heavy scenes. And I, I still feel that. And I think, you know, for me personally, having lived in the UK for more than 15 years now, understanding the culture and the politics just makes those dialogue scenes even funnier because I, I get more and more of the references now. So yeah. yeah, that is something we consistently came across. Uh, I think when we were watching them, you know, there's a whole generation of Australians who really only know people like Nicholas Parsons because he was someone the goodies made fun of. <laughs> yeah, still alive, Nicholas Parsons. Yes, I see. No, it has given me a whole new appreciation, I must admit, for the show. And, and yes, it was the dialogue ones. I, I found the end and stuff like Earth and Asia a lot funnier now than I did probably when I was young. Yeah, for me, they're two of the strongest episodes in the whole series, mm. those two. And also, I, I really, I sort of increasingly am fond uh, of the LWT episodes. Now, the LWT episodes, the first time I ever saw them was on VHS, and they were at my local blockbuster video. You're about the fourth person who's told me that now. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I think the LWT episodes were probably only screened once or twice. I think by Channel 7, possibly. Yeah. And then never seen again. And so, you know, there was this video cassette which had three episodes, I think, or maybe four episodes, actually. And it was available in a lot of blockbuster video shops. And I rented that many, many times. But that series is interesting because suddenly you've got this really nice looking set and higher production values in one sense. They've obviously got a lot more money thrown at it. Mm. And it, it looks very glamorous. But at the same time, they really do start to look middle-aged and you realize that you know the these guys are properly middle-aged now and the change of life episode really reflects that that's what they were feeling Mm. in themselves as well so this idea that they're they're able to run around 
you know, and do all this visual comedy and get involved in capers, they kind of realise it in themselves. And, and there's a sort of inevitability when the show gets axed. Yeah. Now, you, you were involved with the earlier club, weren't you? Mar- oh, um, Melinda yeah. Huber, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Like, basically, so I first got on the internet in 95 and back then it was a very new thing and i was i initially started accessing it at university on the computers there and so i started looking around as you do for things that i'm interested in and i found like initially i found a kind of blackadder news group remember news groups yes <laughs> um, yeah and then i started looking around on the web and i found this goodies page and it really interested me that it was created by an american because i because i'd never knew that it had gone out in america and i got in touch with her and she explained that she'd seen it on pbs and she'd started this website and she was one of those people who i think she was a computer scientist or a computer engineer or something and so she was just starting websites on various topics that she was interested in just as a hobby and she actually, I think around 96 or something, she she decided she was going to stop creating all these websites. And because, you know, I think I think she created a few and they built a community. And so suddenly she's got a whole bunch of communities to look after. I think that was the story. Anyway, I basically said to her, look, can I take over your goodies page? And she said, sure, like you can, I'll hand over the contacts to you. Um, you know all the people who are interested but you know create your own page so I had to learn how to build a website and you know back then it's hard coding isn't it and Mm -hmm. um, so you know I did very basic kind of hard coded HTML web page and I worked out how to make it yellow and purple which seemed appropriate and yeah there it was it was on GeoCities at first yeah okay that's going way yeah yeah this this is the really early days of the internet breaking out and becoming something that the public could be involved with so yeah it was on GeoCities and then eventually Tim Aslett got involved and he's a guy who knows an awful lot more about computers than I do so he actually built a proper website not on GeoCities and you know eventually the whole thing kind of became more like what it is now it was a time when basically you would collect people's email addresses you know, it would manually come into your inbox and you would paste them into a spreadsheet or something. And and then you would send them this email every month that was just text. You know, there was no imagery, no no links to click on, or there, there were occasionally, but it was really just a kind of copy and paste transfer of what people used to get in sort of analog fan clubs, if you like, the, the kind of printed newsletter. And, you know, it's been great to see how it's evolved in the years after I've left, much more professional looking and engaging kind of publications and then social media as well. The goodies paid on social media, which has been run by the people who've succeeded me in a role of club president, is so engaging and has so many people liking it, which is really great. So um, it's been nice to see how it's evolved with the technology. There was also a club run here in Victoria out of Geelong. Were you, were you part of that? No, I only found out about that after, <laughs> you know, I started up my thing. It was never my intention to do something that already existed. I think if I'd known it existed, I just would have joined them. 
but yeah so I, I found out about them but I don't really know what happened to, to that group probably just to wrap this up KittenCon yes you're obviously <laughs> a big part of it what are your memories of from the weekend well I guess a lot of my memories are of being extremely tired during the whole thing because, you know, as one of the organisers, we were just working all day. And and we'd been working, you know, several days or weeks really beforehand as well. And particularly for me and Tracy and the others who were very, very involved, as soon as Tim Brook Taylor arrived, we had him in radio studios in front of cameras talking to media and so forth. And so that was a very, very busy time for, for everyone and, and how amazing and exciting that whole week was. But the event itself, the committee, we, we were just working from breakfast time till, you know, well into the evening, weren't we? Yes, you know, just I remember keep, that. Keeping the thing going. Very yeah. long weekend. My main memories, yeah. the actual days are a bit of a blur. I remember setting up on the Friday and just all the people standing out the front waiting yeah. to get in. And yep. then I have vague memories of running the trivia night and then <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, yes. I remember how much fun that was because you had all these video clips and audio clips and Yeah, that's right. Yeah. My main other memory really from it is actually just sitting in the pub afterwards when we took Tim out to the oh, pub after yeah. we'd all packed up. And then just sort of yeah. sitting there just sort of doing the we we actually pulled this off. <laughs> the highlight of it for me was the Q and A's that Tim did basically it wasn't one of those ones where there's an interviewer who who talks to the person for 45 minutes and then three people get to ask questions at the end (laughs) the format was put your hand up ask a question and it was all audience questions and it was it was great and he was really funny and brilliant and that was great but even better than that and this is the thing that i really can't believe we pulled off was we organised a video link? Yes. And and at the other end was Bill and Graham. And seriously, when when their faces popped up on the screen, people just cheered for about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it was unbelievable. And they had to be kind of physically shut up so that we could actually talk to them. I mean, the thing is that you know we Skype each other and and whatever these days without even thinking about it. But in the year two thousand to set up a link like that was quite an extraordinary undertaking. And there was a guy from Telstra, which is the phone company in Australia, who actually had to come in and put like special cables in mm. to make this happen. And that happened at the last minute. And we were worried that, you know, he wasn't able to come in and do it. And there were engineers at both ends, you know, in the UK and Australia who had to be there to make it work. And it was it was really quite an undertaking. And we were on this link with them for more than an hour. That's right. Yeah, that was... Um, and I, it, I, it didn't fall over. It was amazing. I remember that being a major undertaking. And, of course, we have Tim's son to thank for the UK end of it, I think. We do. I don't know whether he's still in the industry, but he, at the time, worked for this company that set up these video links. And he had contacts in Australia who he convinced to come and do this. And yeah, it's it really is thanks to him that this happened, and it was it was an incredible moment. Excellent. It's been great having you on, Alison, and thank you very much for your time. No problem. It's really interesting to see that there is still such an active and interested community out there, and long may it continue. And we're back. 
<laughs> Thanks very much, Alison, for agreeing to talk to us. That club's now nearly 25 years old, so it's actually pretty impressive that's still going. I mean, she hasn't been involved now for years, so... It was very interesting to hear Alison say those things because mm. it does put the goodies as an organised fandom up there with much more globally known brands, you know, whether mm. it's Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars, those sort of things that you normally think of having fan clubs like this, but the goodies has got a pretty good network as well. Around a lot of these online fan clubs, you do get that community yes. forming. Now, we'll lead into our second interview. That's with someone else who was heavily involved with the Goodies Rule OK Club, and that's Brent Allender, who compiled and edited over 100 issues of the club's newsletter. Yes, a thankless task in any club. Yes, that's exactly right. Newsletter production is probably, yes, the, the most difficult task that fan clubs do. Yes. And he's also responsible for the excellent Goodies episode summaries. That's right, which we discussed in our books episode. We did. Yeah, now I'll make one note. This interview was recorded in a pub, so look, there is a bit of background noise. Hopefully that won't detract from your enjoyment, but fade in again. Let's start with your history with the goodies. Now, I grew up in country Victoria with only two TV channels, and of course one of those two was the ABC, and so we got the good old goodies Doctor Who double uh, of an afternoon when, when they were screening, so uh, that was my introduction to the goodies when I was probably about 11 or 12 or so, and uh, there was many, many repeats of the series over the next 10 years or so. And well, that would have been those halcyon days in the late 70s? Yeah, late, late 70s, days. early 80s, and I think ABC repeated it right through until about 1990 or so so yeah there's plenty of repeats in that time and I used, used to love watching that dad dad was very gracious he let us watch the goodies and <laughs> then he'd usually turn over to the news on the other channel we didn't get to see Doctor Who very often but we at least got to see the goodies <laughs> that would have been uh, well that would have been the TV station out of Ballarat yeah old BDV6 with its homemade ads and, and everything uh, <laughs> no Channel 9 affiliate I think I, I spent a bit of time up in Yarrowa up in the north east and they again only had the two stations mm. One run out of Shepparton, which is GMV6, uh, which again was a nine affiliate. So, yeah, uh, yeah, most of the programming came yeah. through nine. Uh, yeah, lived in stall. So uh, now that of course meant you wouldn't have seen the ITV series when it was on, though. No, I had no idea that that even existed. Uh, right, <laughs> right up until um, we sort of got involved with Goodies Real OK Fan Club in the mid 1990s. Oh really? And uh, what is that? Yeah, in, in, in one of Alison early CNGs, uh, Clarion and Globe newsletters, there was an article in there about this ITV series, uh, four of its episodes were available on an old video cassette, That's right. and uh, it could be rented from, I think it was Network Video in Muralbark, now of course, oh, Muralbark's a hell of a long way away from Stall, so <laughs> I, uh, I made a special trip down to stay with my aunt in Carnegie, right. drove out to Muralbark, joined up the video shop, borrowed the video, brought it back to Carnegie, watched it and taped it, so that gave me four of the seven ITV episodes, and uh, yeah, very interesting, had no idea they even existed. So when did you get to see the other ones? Were only really when you yeah, became... Yeah, what? probably once we were fully involved with the fan club. Um, right. The, the, sort of the, 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 tape, the tape trading days. Yeah, yeah. The, the tape started to do the rounds of the taping and uh, yeah, got to watch the other three then, plus a few of the other rarer ones that oh, uh, yes. ABC never showed, like some of the black and white episodes, uh, Commonwealth Games and uh, Come Dancing and those sort of ones. So... Yeah, that all sort of took off in the in the mid to late nineties because I didn't even have internet at home until nineteen ninety six. Got dial up internet in nineteen ninety six. Got on there. The first thing I looked up was the goodies. Of course, I came across goodies real okay with its eye popping purple and yellow colour scheme. Allison had only started that about a year or so before. I think end of ninety five. So. 
I think the club only had 60 or 70 members at that point. It was just getting going. And, uh, yeah, it was wonderful getting involved with that. You didn't just get involved, though, did you? You (laughs) (laughs) It um, kind of snowballed a bit, yeah. It started off just sort of making a few contributions to the, uh, I think it was the Goodies L. Oh, that's right, the mailing list. The mailing list, That's yeah. right. Yeah, Goodies L mailing list. That's and right. uh, I was trying to think, now what can I write? I've got to be able to think of something about the goodies to write. And so I started off doing a very, very rough draft of an episode summary. I yep. started to go through the episodes that I had and doing a bit of a write-up of the plot and favourite quotes. And then just to be controversial, tried to give them a rating at the end on the black pudding scale, one to five. <laughs> so from um, superstar at the top to uh, tripod to pikelets at the bottom. So uh, that always created a bit of controversy and everyone giving their opinions and that. So uh, at least it, it was a bit of fodder for the mailing list. So that, that was the very early draft of, of the episode summaries. Now, I Kit and Con bought the episode summaries in book form. That's the only time you published it like that, is that right? It is. There was about three different drafts of the book, starting off in about 1998, I think, and Mm -hmm. uh, up until Kit and Con in 2000. I think I released a couple of different ones, because each time I'd do a little bit of a rewrite, add a bit more information, add a few more screen captures. Yeah, I've still got mine. Nice yeah. uh, about 200 page spiral bound book. It was, and that's uh, why that was the last draft too, because once I did my final revision of it in about 2004 or 5, I sat down, I really went through all of the, all of the episodes, wrote down as much as I could think of, more quotes, more pictures. It would have been about a six or 700 page book, so uh, I just ended up putting all of that information on Goodies Real OK uh, on the website, so people can download it for free now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's sort of been the final draft. I haven't really touched the episode summary since about 2005 and then after that point that was when I started to develop the crosswords and the word puzzles and uh, quiz questions and all of that's still going to some extent. I'm still doing the occasional puzzle to, to put on goodies real okay and also for, uh, for the Clarion and Globe newsletter which is having a rebirth. Yes, well I was going to mention the Clarion and Globe because you edited well over 100 issues of that. Alison did the first 50, because right. or 55 I think, because she did it up until Kit and Con, and then when she went to Britain, uh, that was when I took over. I think I'd right. been deputy editor for a time before that, but yeah, right. I did from about edition 55 up to 194, right. and then called it quits in 2012. It lay dormant for four or five years, and uh, now Jenny Doyle's just got it up and going again, and we've had our 200th edition not long ago. Wow. So. I guess with the club, now you obviously you still have, uh, as you've indicated, some minor involvement with the club. In, in terms of club history, what, what can you... Um I guess that the club history all starts off with Alison Bean founding the club and in the early days Alison did everything. She was looking after the CNG, she was president, she did all the correspondence and everything. Just a mighty effort and then after a little while um, a few of us started to give her a hand with some of those things. But uh, yeah, she certainly did the uh, newsletter and the presidency right up until Kit and Con. And then after that, I took over as president for a very brief period. I think it was only a few <laughs> months. And then Catherine Carter took over from me for a little while. And then after that, it's been Lisa Manikovsky for years and years and years. Lisa's... You need a gold watch by now, I reckon, Lisa. <laughs> mighty, mighty, mighty job. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that the peak days of the club were in the late 90s in the lead up to Kit and Con. Yeah, the period after and also in the mid 2000s because that's the time where some of the network DVD videos were coming out. Uh, The show was still screening on Foxtel. They did the reunion special. They also did the two stage shows here 
and a stage show in Britain. So uh, things are really happening in the mid 2000s. No, we're buying the clubs. Now, what, coming up to 25 years? It so is, yeah. Wow. And it's, it's been a survivor because uh, when it first started off, Alison was based in Adelaide. Mm. Uh, Tim Aslatt's in Adelaide, a technical right. guy. You're in Melbourne. I was in Stall at the time. And I think Country I've Vic, moved right. about three or four times since then. Ben <laughs> Bendigo now. Uh, David Bolston was in a, in the UK. Lisa mm. Manikowski, America. So we, our main key people mm. were from all, all over the place. Yes. And I've been not leave out Tracy as well. No. Here in Melbourne, Tracy Beard, who did such a mighty job with Kit and Con. Yeah, well, I was going to say, speaking of Kit and Con, one thing it did do as well as bring Timple Taylor out here, it did actually get most of the committee together for a brief period. It did, I reckon that's the one time that we've got that famous photo of us all together and uh, now it's probably been about 18 years since we've seen each other <laughs> up until today. So yeah, it is quite, a little... Quite uh, remarkable. A yeah. bit disconcerting yeah, looking at yourself nearly 20 years Time younger. machine, yeah. <laughs> Now, I guess leading into Kit and Con, what are your memories from the weekend? As one of the uh, organisers, I, I just remember it being very, very hectic. Uh, massive hours, a lot to do behind the scenes, but extremely satisfying. Just to see how much everyone enjoyed it and to have Tim out here in person and the link up with uh, Graham mm. and Bill on video, it was just the most memorable, wonderful weekend. But I think we we're all utterly exhausted by the end of it. Yes, I think so. <laughs> there was an immense feeling of satisfaction after that. And where did we end up? Elephant and Wheelbarrow or something? Uh, I think one of the pubs. And it, it was just a really nice wind down after a, a massive weekend. But yeah, we, we did it and it just felt very satisfying. Uh, it's, all, it's all a bit of a blur and looking back at it now, I mean, since then I've um, changed jobs three times and I've moved house four times, so it was almost another another lifetime ago. But, uh, yeah, you remember back and yeah, it was, it was just a blur, but it's a big happy blur as well. Yeah, I, I just thought it, um, it went really well in the end and the feedback that we got from people was that they enjoyed it too. And that, that's the satisfying part. Mm. Yeah, we made a lot of money for charity. Yeah, we sold a lot of t-shirts, and you mm. obviously sold a lot of your episode guides. Yeah, there was. I couldn't keep up with them in the end. I think I had to get another 20 or 30 printed afterwards, because we <laughs> sold out of what we had. So those people are probably slightly miffed that everything's available for free now. <laughs> it has been for about the last 10 uh, or 12 years. <laughs> uh, look, that, that book, I must admit, I've still got mine, and look, it's actually been really handy, actually, sitting down reading through that for preparing for the podcast. Yeah, so that's good. No, it's all very much, uh, very much a good time. The most exciting bit of feedback that I had was uh, when Tim, Graham and Bill were trying to pick episodes to put on the uh, network DVD yeah. releases, they were using my book as their background oh, really? information. So I, was, I thought, Gee, that's pretty special. <laughs> that's a pretty good, uh, pretty, yeah, pretty good endorsement. Feather in the cap, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I have actually got a copy of my book at home, with yeah. the three of them signed. The Tim's handwritten the official <laughs> episode summaries guide. So uh, yeah, that was it's in Tim's handwriting. So that's good enough. Wow, well, there you go. Yeah. That's, that's pretty ringing endorsement. That's very good. Yeah, oh, excellent. Now, I seem to recall you saying you're inspired to work in sciences through uh, by Graham. Is that... Um... <laughs> yeah, there is, is actually some truth to that. Um, everyone's got their childhood heroes, I suppose, and uh, yeah, growing up as an 11 or 12-year-old kid and being a bit interested in science, why wouldn't you have a loony scientist as a hero? Especially when he makes giant kittens and uh, monster cod and all those other things. Um, yeah, utterly brilliant. So, no, Graham was certainly a childhood hero, and uh, I guess he did inspire me to work in science a bit because I got my science degree and I spent the last 30 years working in various science labs now. Oh, there you go. I, I can't say that I'm building Frank and Fido in one of the back labs or anything, <laughs> but uh, give me time, we're working on it. 
And we're back. Thanks to Brett for the interview, and extra thanks for making the two-hour drive down to Melbourne yes. uh, just to talk to us. Yes, very much appreciated. And yeah, again, we're very generous. And again, a very interesting insight into just a mm. different aspect of fandom. We'll now move into our final segment, which is a bit of a look at some other stuff that happened in Australia, most of it after the goodies actually had finished broadcasting here, and some involving the goodies themselves. Indeed. Mm. We'll probably start off with this segment by saying that we talked in our Christmas special about KittenCon. So look, we won't rehash that, I think. If you're interested, you can go and download our Christmas episode. But one thing that did happen in the aftermath of KittenCon was that the goodies themselves were approached about coming out and doing a professional tour of stage shows in 2005. Yes. Yeah, so you say, Richard, that this was something that came out of KittenCon. What was the process that went from you guys holding a fan convention to suddenly people with money actually bringing the goodies for real out to Australia? My understanding is that once we'd run KittenCon, John Pinder in Sydney had seen the success. Yes, uh, and, and was a big goodies fan himself. Exactly. And he was dealing with the comedy festival up there, and he thought, what a great idea. And it took five years for it to coalesce and actually happen. But he approached each of the goodies and said, look, you know, there's a huge support groundswell in Australia of the goodies. Would you be interested in coming out there and doing a series of shows around the country? Well, initially, I think he was only going to get them for the comedy festival, wasn't well, he? I think it was, but then, yeah, everyone else sort of said... Oh, and then, well, no, hang on, we want them too. Yeah. And they did something, I think it was 13 or 14 shows, and they were all sold out very, very quickly, and they were packed houses. And I remember when they came, they only, because they only had a very short window when they were in Australia, they actually did two shows in Melbourne on the same night the first time they were here. Mm. And I remember both those shows were packed. There were people out the front looking for tickets. What sort of venue size are we talking about? It was at the Art Centre. Hamer Hall. Yeah, it was at Hamer Hall at the Art Centre. That's about a thousand seats. Yeah, and it was absolutely packed. It was. It was a great show. They obviously, I think, were quite excited by the level of of enthusiasm and support they found when they got here. But it was very much a whistle-stop tour. Absolutely. And I think people were surprised that they all took part. Mm. Uh, and that was the selling point for everybody. But it was more, as I understand it, the actors themselves doing a performance than really a goodies thing. Yeah, it was a night with Tim Brooke, Taylor, Graham Garden and Bill Oddie. Yes. Yeah. Really. It wasn't actually a proper stage production, hey, this is a goodies episode on stage. No. no. It was very much a, an evening with the three goodies. Yeah, they talked about their history, how they got to where they were to be in the goodies. They discussed how they liked performing. They also preferred the radio over anything else. It gave them an opportunity to do some of their popular set pieces. Graham got to do his Pets Corner routine. They did the bleeping of the Julie Andrews song. They did their radio play. They answered a few pre-prepared questions from the audience, etc. Where Tim got to tell his favourite story and Kitten Con being dragged. Uh, Well, they they had clips up there explaining it because you know they went through the movies gag, you know, with the, the falling down side of the barn. Mm. All of that was all part and parcel of yeah. them talking about their favourite bits of the goodies as well. So that tour was a lightning tour, but it was incredibly successful, sold out shows, and it was popular enough to spawn a sequel. Yes, well, I think they were obviously quite overwhelmed by the amount of support and the amount of enthusiasm for the tour. So, of course, it was very much, well, how quickly can we get you back to do a proper tour mm. down here? Now, unfortunately, Bill opted out of the second tour. They came back later that year. So I went to that tour, mm. and my memory of it is that was a lot more of a scripted show. It had Tim and Graham and virtual Bill. Yes. So they had pre-recorded some segments with Bill Oddie that they played on the big screen, and it was done in such a way that unless they adhered to the script, obviously it would look like they were interacting 
with yes. Bill, including a bit they did the trick with Graham walking off the stage, suddenly appearing on the film, belting Bill, and then walking back out onto the stage yes. again. And also the bit where Bill screws up a piece of paper and throws it at Graham, yes. and a piece of paper comes from the side of the screen and yes. hits Graham. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of that sort of stuff to make it look like it was live. One comment we did have from this one was, I think about probably three quarters of it was material from the first show. Okay. There was a fair bit of a reuse because I guess the intention was probably look they're back this time we're going to do a proper tour. They did you know a couple of nights in each centre. They actually went to some regional centres as well. So it was essentially the same tour, but bigger and more people will get an opportunity to see them. And it was very well advertised as well. And it was incredibly well advertised. And, and I just remember the thing that really struck me about what a big deal this was was walking past the art centre at one point a few days beforehand and they'll have all the big posters of the shows that are coming up. Mm. You know, you'd have these big plays, these big operas, you know, big name. You know, this is the heart of Melbourne's arts capital, mm. doing big stuff. And there's a picture of the goodies yeah. Yeah. amongst all this. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was. And there was a bit of merchandise around at the time. You know, you've got the key rings and you've got... Yes, there was. They had the oven gloves and the aprons. Yeah. And the... So all yeah. that was around. And again, look, that was it was a really good show. I have very fond memories of it, but... It's hard to really capture just that feeling of a thousand dedicated fans, like packed. Mm. You know, there's not a spare seat packed into this hall that would normally, as I say, have you know, big opera or big showcase performances. And two of the goodies roll out on stage on the tram and just, it was like a rock concert. Yeah, it was. Mm. I do remember when we were sort of talking to them for a few minutes after the show, they did say that this tour was better because they had more time to actually enjoy it, see a bit more of the country, actually have a bit of downtime between some of the shows, etc. So I think this one probably was maybe a slightly more enjoyable tour for them, mm. perhaps because they were able to take a bit more time here. But again, I thought it was really quite successful. Mm, likewise. So that's those. Okay, so did they tour again after that? They did. They only went to Sydney the third time. It was part of the comedy festival up there and it was done as the world's funniest island. So it was one of the islands in the harbour. And they had a stage and everything set up there and they had, I don't think the goodies were the only ones appearing there. No, there was a few. But once again, I think it was only Tim and Graham, wasn't it? It was only Tim and Graham. Again, Bill opted out of the tour, but it was hosted by one of the guys from The Chaser, Andrew Hanson, I think it was. And it was done as them talking about their reminiscences of the series. Probably the highlight from that was they showed, this was around the time that the goodies sense clips turned up. Just very quickly, what they are is, when the goodies were cut here, the Australian Censorship Board or the Australian Archive actually retained copies of the cuts, much as they had with, if anyone's a Doctor Who fan, the equivalent Doctor Who clips that turned up some years earlier. The goodies clips had been retained, so it actually was quite a significant find because the version of the Commonwealth Games just quickly held by the BBC had been returned from here and was obviously missing the material cut by the Australian censors, which we talked about when we covered the episode, which was the sex test scene. Yes, very brutal and unsubtle cuts. Yes, but those clips do still exist and they were recovered from the archive. So they screened the entire sex test scene as part of that. That was probably quite significant there and they haven't really turned up anywhere else. Um, hopefully when uh, the box sets come out, look, hopefully those episodes will be restored to completeness. But mm. Mm. yeah, so that was that. And then the last one, it was Bill. By himself. Yes, who came out here in 2013, I think it was. Yeah, um, and much did, later. And did his own, uh, an oldie but a goodie tour. Now that was some stuff about the goodies. 
it was also some stuff about some of the other work he's done and how he then moved into obviously producing bird watching and nature uh, documentaries etc unfortunately i didn't see that when it was here i didn't get a chance either now i didn't either but fortunately brett allender did yes and he recorded a short discussion with richard when they caught up he did which we'll cut to now. Unfortunately, again, the pub is a bit noisier when this bit was recorded. So, but look, again, hopefully that won't detract too much. Now, we've talked a few times, obviously, about the, the Goody stage shows. Now, the first of those, you went to both tours when they were here in 2005. Yeah, I was lucky enough to get to both of them, Richard. I um, went to the March one uh, at Hamer Hall with the three goodies, and then also uh, when uh, Tim and Graham came back later on and, and had Bill up on screen. I think that was about October. Virtual Bill? Yeah, Virtual Bill, yeah. So I saw that one at Hamer Hall in Melbourne and also at Albury. Went to that ah, yes, a bit later right. on, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing we talked about. I remember the the first time they were here, I mean, they were actually supposed to come out, I think it was from the Sydney Comedy Festival, mm. and then there was such a big interest in getting them elsewhere, they then sort of did this really wizard stop tour based around a couple of other capital cities. Yeah, they did. I think they only did four or five other shows. I remember the Melbourne one, I think they hooked into two shows on the one night the first yeah, time. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to see it twice that night, actually. Oh, you actually yeah. did you? Yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah. I think it probably was because they'd had the first one to rehearse yeah, and, uh, okay. and sort of worked their way in and yeah. warm up and yeah, the second one was, was probably even better. Yes, and then of course the second time they came, because it was a proper tour and a much more planned tour, of course they took them around some of the regional centres. They did, they went to about 24 different yeah. uh, cities and towns or, around the place. I do remember that being quite good. It was a bit hard without Bill, and I think it's sort of missing something, but um, I still remember that being quite a good show. Yeah, because when, when I first saw it in Melbourne, I thought, gee, this is still really good, but it's just not the same without Bill there. But then getting to see it that second time in Albury, I got to appreciate it even more because they tightened the script up a lot. They, I think they had a lot of better jokes. Uh, they, Tim and Graham just worked together outstandingly, and also Bill's contributions are wonderful as well, and they could poke fun at him for not being there. So uh, in, in, in many ways, this, uh, this second show that they had later on was every bit as good a goody experience yeah. as the first one. It's just that you didn't have Bill there in person. Yeah. So, yeah, they're a little bit different, the shows, but they're both great. Yeah, okay, yeah, because I, I remember when they did the second one, I remember sort of talking to Tim uh, backstage after the one we went to in Melbourne, and he sort of said the big difference this time was that it made Graham sort of come out of his shell and actually work differently than he had probably on the initial one because of it. he had Bill and Tim on either side of him. He could sort of, you know, be a bit quieter. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. He's, he still put in a wonderful contribution to that first one, but he, he was certainly the quieter of the three, while the other two yeah, tended yeah. to dominate more. But, yeah, with this second tour, uh, him and Tim just worked together so well. They had a lot of really good lines. They'd obviously put a lot of work in and, and uh, come up with a lot more uh, jokes and things as well. And, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah. You didn't get up, you didn't get managed to get up to Sydney, did you, to see the world's funniest island? No, I didn't, did didn't see that. I just had to rely on the uh, news reports that I received for the Clarion and Globe. But one thing you did get to see, you went to Bill's show when he was out here. I, I did, that was uh, 2013. He uh, appeared at the Esther Theatre in Melbourne, yeah, at the Esther. And uh, the, the show itself was really good, uh, very casual and laid back. It was almost like he just sort of walked in from bird watching and just sat there in a little chair on the stage and had a nice yarn to us, showed a heap of video clips. 
Um, yeah, very, very laid back but enjoyable show. Right. Uh, unfortunately, there was a few technical issues with that. The sound and the video at the Aston was utterly terrible that night. There was a lot of booming in the microphone yeah. and crackling, and the video sort of seized up a bit. And Bill was making jokes about it, which was good, but it certainly um, sort of inhibited the performance a bit. But yeah, his actual material was excellent, and he, he met all of us backstage and signed a heap of autographs, uh, had photos taken. The only thing with that, though, was that we all had to be out of the Astor Theatre by 7pm because they were showing Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> so there was a big hurry on to get everyone through and all the autographs signed and they have us all booted out. And unfortunately for us, none of the other venues that he, he played at had that sort of worry. So, so they, yeah, they all had longer shows and then they had more time to chat with him afterwards. Although I don't think that we missed out too much show-wise because looking at the DVD that they did of the Brisbane uh, oh, yes. one, um, a lot of the extra time was taken up with more clips. So I think we still got to see as much of Bill in person. It's just that there were more clips and sing-alongs and other things like that that we probably missed out on. So what was the content like? Surprising, actually. It was a really nice mix. There was a bit about his life. There was a lot of goodies material and a little bit of bird watching and nature as well. It was just a really nice summary of all of the things that he'd been working on. And also in there as well, uh, when he was just leading up to talking about the goodies, he showed a, a clip that he, Tim and Graham had made before he left. Uh, a little clip over in, in England there where he's about to come to Australia and he's he's asking them if they have any words of encouragement. And I think the only word that they said was goodbye or something. They were trying to just brush him off and then they're trying to scare him with all of the wildlife that he'd find out there. You'll, you'll end up with a pocket full of spiders and all these snakes and other things and... Uh, and, and then they uh, they tried to uh, to make out that he wasn't allowed to talk about the goodies uh, contract. You got to talk about other things. So poor Bill was panicking and in a sweat there. What can't talk about the goodies? It'll die a death. He's going. So uh, yeah. So it was quite a nice little clip of about three minutes of brand new goodies with the three of them okay. interacting. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, because having no, just like having his really autobiography, which really isn't a good book. No. Um, it, it's it's more about obviously his life and some of the issues he's had over the years um, with mental health and whatever. Um, Woody's really isn't a big part of that at all. So I was sort of wondering whether the show took that sort of attack. But yeah, I think that he tailored it uh, because it was an Australian audience yeah. and we mainly know him from the goodies. I think that there was probably still a majority of goodies things, but he certainly did cover a fair bit of bird watching and, and nature watching and also a little bit of early days as well he caught up with some old school friends in a, uh, in a video clip they, were, they used to be in a skiffle band at his, at his <laughs> private school and he, he hadn't seen these people for about 40 years so he caught up with his old skiffle band okay. so there was a bit of reminiscing from his childhood as well Okay. Oh, very good and we're back and we're back and thanks again to Brett for giving us his memories of those goodies visits. I'm very disappointed that I didn't get to see Bill. I'm you know, very happy I've seen Graham and I've seen Tim live, but I never have seen Bill live, and at this stage probably well, no, may, may I, never one. So no, I don't know why hear. I didn't go to that one. I do remember it being on, but um, I'm actually sorry now I didn't go. That's it really for the official tours. Yes. Okay, so that's the official stuff. A few comments on the unofficial stuff that also happened. Right, there was an unofficial stage play. Yes. By Ben McKenzie. Yes. And Rob Lloyd. Yes, a record or an OBE. A record or an OBE, which um, happened, I think it's around 2007, 2008 period. Yes. Which was a, an alternative reality take on 
what had happened if Bill had left the goodies at the end of season five? To, to go off and pursue a career as a pop star. As a very successful pop star. Yes, leaving um, Tim and Graham, obviously, to carry on. Yes. Now, rather than listen to us talk about a record or an OBE, we recorded an interview with the author and one of the principal performers, Ben McKenzie. Yes, somebody who is now, I think we could say, a veteran of the Melbourne pub comedy scene. And speaking of pubs, this one was also done as an outside broadcast in a pub. So again, usual disclaimers about background noise. Sitting here with me is Ben, whose email signature describes him as actor, comedian, writer, game designer and ginger. Now, I get the last one, but maybe you'd like to uh, expand on the other three. Oh, sure. Well, uh, I've been an actor and a comedian for a long time. These days, mostly I write comedy, but also other things, including most recently a video game. Um, and I make games, board games, uh, role-playing games, and lots of live games, which is what I've been doing a lot for the last six or seven years, including a, an escape room-style game where you robbed a bank. Yes, well, listeners, if you go back to Daylight Robbery on the Orient Express, we actually oh, gave Ben a plug in there. Oh, <laughs> did you? For his escape room. Oh, was it still open at the time? <laughs> I don't think so. No, never mind. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun to run that. I mean, it was an actual old bank. It had a real bank vault... Uh, we tricked it out with like laser traps and pressure plates and everything. It was a, it was a lot of fun to run. And I really hope that I will build another one in the future. It was wow. it was really great. Maybe uh, we'll start with your history with the goodies. Well, I started watching them like a lot of people in their thirties and forties in Australia when I was a kid. You know, because they were on ABC all the time, and there was that brief period where they were on Channel Ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of later on. I remember that because. When I, I grew up in the far north coast of New South Wales, and were so you, we were you also someone who had only two TVs. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it was the ABC <laughs> and NRTV, uh, which stood for Northern Rivers Television, and they eventually got bought by Channel Ten. And right. I think it was around the time when they got bought by Ten that they uh, briefly screened the goodies yeah. for a year or so there. But but I used to watch them on the ABC, and I I loved it. And I remember I was obsessed with it when I was in primary school. I was obsessed with the show. Um, and I remember writing my own versions of some of the stories where I would like, cast me as my friends at school. But yeah, I loved it. I always loved it. And um, I think if anyone's seen a photo of me, you'll probably find no surprise in learning that my favourite was always Graham. Um, and for many years I had big uh, sideburns, partly inspired by him. But it came in very handy when we were doing the, the stage play because I looked a bit like him, so that was helpful. I, I've always loved it. And I think every time I've gone back to it, I've still really liked it. And for me, I feel... It, it often it gets a bit forgotten even though we watched it so much in Australia but I think for me I thought they were more consistently funny for a longer period mm. than the Monty Python crew because like, everyone remembers all the good Monty Python sketches but you watch any episode it's full of stuff that isn't really very good Yes. Um, whereas you watch, you know, there are dud episodes of the goodies but there's l- so many more good ones Oh, for sure. and, um, and I feel like there are some of my favourite episodes are from the first season some of my favourite episodes are from the ITV season I really think that there's some really gold stuff in that last season I mean, there's some stuff that's not so great as well. Um, but, but I also, when they weren't on TV, my local VHS video rental library, so I'm yeah, dating yeah. myself there, uh, but they, uh, they had the ITV series on VHS. Yeah, Football yeah. Crazy is still one of the greatest episodes of all time. And I really love the Bigfoot episode as well. And I think they're both as good as anything they did in the first season, which is quite amazing when that's like 10 years later, mm. that they're still putting out stuff as funny as that. So... Now, of course, Ben is also the author and one of the two principal, one of the only two performers for a record or an OBE. It's true. Yes. yes. 
did do that. It feels like a long time ago now. We were talking off air before we started it. That I think it was ten years ago when we first did it, two thousand and eight. I think in the end we only did uh, three seasons of it. We right. did it at Melbourne Fringe. We did it at Adelaide Fringe, and we did it at Melbourne Comedy Festival. So, for those who didn't have the opportunity to see the show, what can you tell us about it? Well, it's kind of it was a, a piece of comedy theatre. It was it's quite a high concept when I think about it now. I don't know what possessed us to do this, but the, the theme of the show was about you know what is the nature of comedy collaboration. Um, you know, when you work with other people, when you're in that tight knit, collaborative, artistic kind of relationship with someone, what's it like? when it ends mm. and so uh, because myself and um, the other performer Rob Lloyd big goodies fans um, and our director Scott Gooding was as well we decided that would be a great way to explore this so we wrote a play which was like a theoretical what if kind of play where um, what if at the height of the goodies popularity in 1975 Bill Oddie had said so this for a game of soldiers I'm off to be a real pop star suck it losers and left and so the play is about Tim and Graham and it actually, it picked literally the first thing that happens is there's the sound of a door slamming um, after a little bit of a, a um, recorded intro. And it's Tim and Graham going, Bill's just left. What the hell do we do now? And, and we structured it. We, we wrote it as a play, but we also tried to make it feel a bit like a, an episode of The Goodies in that we put lots of their style. We tried to put lots of their style of humor in it, yep. even though it was about the real people, not about the characters. Um, and we had, uh, we had a fake ad break in the middle, and then it cuts to... Uh, years later and it and the basic plot was in the first half uh, Tim and Graham are arguing about whether or not they should do because they've got a contract to do another season with the BBC and it's like well should we do it or not and uh, and if we do what will we do and they sort of brainstorm it and come up with an idea then there's a fake ad break and then you cut to after the season has been made and aired and they're meeting up afterwards and Tim's like we should do some more and Graham's like shut up I'm done with this um (laughs) And so it also became a bit about um, creative burnout and and the um, the stresses of making comedy because it's you know it's 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 something that's been we we you know we weren't doing it from a perspective of this is what everybody is doing but I do remember that the one UK reviewer who saw it during the comedy festival season um, was it thought it was a bit derivative and listed all these shows that he thought it was like and we're like we haven't seen any of those because <laughs> there was a there was a great doc and I've seen it since I hadn't seen it when we were doing or writing the show but there was a great um, kind of docudrama about Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and and it was really great but it had very similar themes about okay. the fact that a lot of comedians suffer from depression or burnout or anxiety or um, and, and that was sort of something that happened in our show. Yes, yeah, so I certainly remember they did one also around Stephen Cain and Sun, I think yeah. around the same time. Yeah, and uh, he referenced that too, and we hadn't seen either of those, and in fact, when we were writing and making the first season the year before, I don't think they'd even aired in Australia or we'd really heard of them here, so it was that was a bit disappointing, mm. but I guess it was something, it was, it was the zeitgeist of the time, everyone wanted to talk about how hard it was to be a comedian, um, particularly when you're doing that sort of output and do it through the, the sort of... Uh, and by representing their comedy heroes on the screen, and so yeah, those were a lot of the influences that went into it, and it was it was a really good experience, like writing and making and performing the show, um, and still I'm still pretty proud of it. I think it was a really good half hour, and that, that was the thing, like it was only half an hour long. It was meant to feel like an episode, so it was very short. Didn't outstay its welcome. Yeah, never considered reviving it. Um, I haven't really ever talked about it. We don't. Rob and I don't work together much anymore. He's he's doing a lot of stuff that's in a similar vein. I don't know if you've if you've not seen his stuff. If you're into 
any of the kind of that, that kind of 80s stuff he's big on doing like he did a show about his love of Doctor Who uh, he did a show about his love of Sherlock Holmes he's done tribute shows for anniversaries of things like Back to the Future he does a lot of that kind of stuff which is which is great fun if you want to go and revisit those things and I've kind of moved on to do I, I've kind of gone to do other things and I, I do still do commentary and stuff about those shows I mean you know I did a year long podcast about Doctor Who but I, yeah so he's we're doing quite different stuff now um and I think that we probably wouldn't revive it. But it, I guess it's not 100% out of the question. One day we might. You never know. But look, it was good fun. And it was a fun process to make the show as well. Because we um, were both... Rob and I are both improvisers. And our director, Scott, um, was very on board with that kind of process. I met him doing the uh, comedy review at Melbourne University. Right. And we used to generate ideas for sketches for that by doing impro games and coming up with funny scenarios and weird jokes and then we'd sit down and turn them into a script. And that's essentially the process we followed for a record or an OBE, okay. which is that we would do these sort of impro sessions where we'd, we'd sort of try out different ideas about what might happen, and we'd record them. And then when we had one that we were pretty happy with, we'd sort of take a few bits of this one and that one, and then I would sit down and turn it into a script and tighten it up a bit and, and make sure it made you know had a good flow. And, um, and then we rehearsed it as a play. And it was... Uh, it was good fun. It was. I, look, I have to say, I thought it was great, Joe. I actually found myself really wanting to join the conversation there a couple of times. Because so, <laughs> I remember when we saw it, it was quite a fairly intimate space. It was an intimate venue. We always did it in quite small venues, yeah. Yeah. Well, so we had to do it in small venues because you don't get a cost break on your venue hire when your show is half the length of the usual spot. Yeah. So doing a half-hour show, we were like, okay, well... That's what it is. Um, we'll do, have to do it in a small one. Um, we can't, and you, you can't charge. It's really hard to charge a full ticket price for a show that's only half an hour long. So it was quite difficult to make money on. I think. I think we. I think we did at least broke even from memory on all of the seasons, except maybe Adelaide. Adelaide was tough, and it was. It was a bit of a trial. It was a heat wave in Adelaide that year, and uh, we were in one of the very last um, fringe run venues. They don't really run their own venues now. The fringe in Adelaide. And uh, it was at the old Balfour's Pie Factory, and they called it the Fringe Factory. And we were in a room that was called the Fridge, but it was just a brick box basically. <laughs> so we had this massive fan, and there was no air conditioning. So this massive fan up the back that was on, and the show was set in winter. So we our normal costumes were like a jacket and a jumper. Because I looked up photos. We like we did our research. Like I looked up photos of what they wore behind the scenes, like not yeah. on the show. And Graham was always wearing these like woolen jumpers, so I had a woolen jumper on, and, and Rob was wearing like a cardigan, and uh, it was like 40 degrees in there. So we ended up just ditching those and forgetting about what time of year it was set at, um, and just just doing it. And it was uh, yeah, it was it was it was a crazy time at the French factory. That was it. It was a terrible French festival um, <coughs> for some of us, but. Uh, but we got some nice reviews there, actually, uh, even if we didn't get big audiences, and most people seem to really enjoy it. So I get, and you can't ask much more than that for a, for a performer. You want an audience who comes along and has a good time. Mm. Um, and one of the best, actually, one of the best shows we did in, was in Melbourne, uh, because we were on at a time that clashed with a lot of other comedians. We organised a special one-off late-night performance that was mostly just so all our comedian mates could come because they all wanted to see it because a lot of them were Goonies yeah, fans, and it was about shows. comedy. Yeah. And so that show, we didn't obviously didn't make any money on it because you know you let your comedy mates in for free. Um, but it was such a good vibe in the room; everybody was on board and really into it. And it was, I, I think I'll remember that night, like for the rest of my life. It was such a good, 
it's a good night. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Are you happy to divulge the plot of that? Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah, as I say, it starts with Bill saying, that's it, I'm off, I'm not doing the show anymore, I'm going to be a real rock star, I've got a contract um, with a record company, and Bill and Tim argue about, are they going to do it, uh, sorry, not Bill and Tim, Graham and Tim argue, are they going to do it? Tim desperately wants to do another season because he thinks it's his main ticket to success. Graham is like, it's all very well for you, you haven't picked up a pen and written an episode in ages, um, which is very cheeky. I don't know if I ever got a script to either of them, but I feel I feel like... I feel actually I think Tim has seen the script uh, at some point, uh, so I don't know what he thought of it. I think, but, but I think they I thought mean, it was fine. I was going to say they they did have the jokes, of course, where they had a dangerous bit or they wanted someone to drag up or be in freezing cold water. It's like, oh, well, we'll give that to Tim. Yeah, because he's not writing the yeah. script. So, and and it was all. I mean, look, I should say it was hard, largely inspired by the liner notes to the um, Yum Yum Best of the Goodies oh, album yes. because <laughs> those are scathing from Bill, and uh, you know it's clearly meant in jest, but but uh, as I think Tim said. Irony doesn't really work in print. There's no facial expression. There's no t- intonation. Where he basically says, they stopped me from being a real pop star. Like, I could have been a contender kind of deal. Anyway, so they argue about it. Tim's like, I need this. I need this. And Graham's like, it's fine for you. Like, you want me to write a whole series of the goodies by myself? Uh, and it's, like, too hard. And he's like, no, come on, we'll do it. It'll be great. And then they do do it. They, he kind of convinces him, maybe we can do it. And then they brainstorm what's it going to be about. And it ends up being like a season-long story about Tim getting possessed by a ghost. But it's the ghost of a woman, so he dresses up as a woman for the whole season. And, and then there's a, a fake ad break in the middle, uh, which was a parody of the um, uh, Heens Means Beans ads. Um, and then the second half is after the show has aired. And it's kind of met with a lukewarm critical reception. It's been Some people have liked it, but it hasn't been great. And Tim's like, great, so the next season we'll do it. And Graham's like, I'm not doing another one. I've just spent the last, you know, three months on a sabbatical in Scotland, like, recovering. Like, I've had a breakdown. I can't write a whole season by myself. That's too much work. Um, and so they they decide to go their separate ways. And it's quite emotional. Uh, mm. And then you get the little bit at the end where it's like, what happened to them? And Graham, like, goes on to do a bit more comedy writing and appear on panel shows but doesn't really do a lot of comedy performance. And... Tim goes on to do a sitcom about a spy whose cover story is that he's a bingo caller and the show is called Legs Eleven. <laughs> and I was like, what a great sitcom. I wish that had actually been real. Uh, and I should say we had a great... Uh, Mick Cahill did the voiceovers for us um, and he's got this great bass, like, English voice and it just really it was beautiful. It was really good. Yeah. That was basically what it was. Excellent. Yeah, uh, do you want to plug your... Yeah, look, if you you want to know more about what I get up to, you can hit my website at benmckenzie.com.au. But I do do another podcast, which is called Pratt Chat. It's a monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. We're going to read and discuss every single Terry Pratchett book with a special guest, one a month. So we're going to be doing it for about six years. Um, But we're committed and we're having a good time. By the time this comes out, I think we'll be up to about episode eight or nine. So um, do join us. It's been fun so far. And we're back again. That was very, very interesting. It's fascinating to hear it from actually being on the stage and what it was like to actually put it all together. Yeah. Thank you to Ben for coming on. That was a really interesting discussion about the play. And look, hopefully he'll mount another season at some point. I think it's something fans would get a lot out of. Yes, and we'll link to Ben's Twitter profile on the Facebook page as well for Mm. anybody who wants to follow some of the other stuff he does. Yes. So look, hopefully that's been an entertaining wander through the goodies history here in Australia. Yeah, which I think, you know, 
they're popular enough to have spawned this podcast. So They really didn't know how popular it was in Australia until Tim came down here for the convention, really. Yeah, that's very true. And that's actually something we did miss out on mentioning. Tim had been in Australia once before. Well, a couple of times, I think. Well, a couple of times. Yes, he'd been here doing stage plays. Well, on top of the stage plays, but in the 70s he came out and he did a commercial and was on the Norman Gunston show. Oh, yes, he was. So he was slightly aware of it. Because actually, yeah, because when, when he came out for Norman Gunston, that was actually the point when the ABC had just moved them to the week, realised they were really popular and had just moved them to the weeknights. Mm. And he came out, he was the one who came out to do the promotion for it. And the clip of him on Norman Gunston is on YouTube. It is quite a funny little interview because he gets what Norman Gunston is about really quickly because Norman Gunston just very quickly for anyone who doesn't know he was an Australian faux TV interviewer who really did that sort of ambush style of interviewing which you would see later on with like Ali G or whatever where he's pretending to be somebody he's not yes. and asks these really inane questions of the guests yeah but he got what Norman Gunston was about really quickly and that is really quite a fun little interview mm. so there you go but yes Australia does have a very lengthy history with the goodies and long may it continue exactly right so thank you. That's been a good look at the history of the goodies in Australia, when they were shown, how fandom reacted to them, and when they came out here themselves, and how they were honoured by a few other people. So hopefully you found that interesting, and we look forward to hearing any of your reminiscences via the usual channels. Mm. We'll be back next week with, well, our final episode of the podcast. Yes, we've made it all the way to the end. And we have a few reflections of what we've learnt about the goodies and about each other <laughs> maybe not that far we, we have in all seriousness though we have got some reflections of what it's actually been like to go through the whole run of the goodies in order one at a time yeah we, we've been through some stuff man <laughs> and we uh, we will have some comments to wrap up on that reflections about the process and what it was like mm-hmm. to go through it we will have a series wide version almost of our what you couldn't get away with today uh, yes and we'll be talking about some of our favourites mm, indeed so we look forward to that one. See you soon. And on your way to Cricklewood, you might take a walk in the Black Forest. You've been listening to the Goodies Pirate Podcast, the Australian podcast that puts the good in goodies. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or your thoughts on upcoming episodes. So please drop us a line by email at pirategoodiespc at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at at pirategoodiespc or find us on Facebook at facebook.com stroke pirategoodiespc. Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. (laughs) 